even though activism is always seen as confrontational, I actually see it as a practice in creativity and imagination because we are challenging broken systems and imagining what a new, better world looks like. We are artists of the future. And I think if we see ourselves as that, everything becomes much more exciting. So think of yourself as having this very strong agency and that you know that whatever energy you're putting into the movement right now will be the future that your kids are going to live in. Hello and welcome to season two of The Story of Woman. In today's world, it can feel like change is happening, but only in the wrong direction. While we agree there's still a lot of work to do, we're reframing that story. I'm your host, Anna Steckline, and each episode of this season, I'll be exploring how women make change happen from those at the top helping to drive it. We'll look at where we are in this long march to equality, what lies ahead, and how important you are in the fight. This isn't a story of a world that's doomed to oppress women forever. This is a story of an opportunity to grow stronger than ever before, exactly as womankind has always done. Hello and welcome back. Thank you, as always, for being here. We've got an incredibly urgent topic to cover today, the climate crisis. And I'm speaking with Shia Bastida about it, who is one of the leaders of the climate movement and specifically the youth movement. She's 21 now, but started this work when she was like 14, 15 years old, which is just so incredible and really goes to show what young people have to deal with today. You know, she's talked about how instead of playing sports or doing theater or doing these hobbies that she might have been into, she's instead been organizing protests and speaking at global conferences. And the climate crisis is unique in that the younger you are, the more you'll be affected by it. And it's just so hard for the rest of us to imagine what it's like growing up in this world with the knowledge of the climate crisis looming and getting more urgent by the minute when us in the older generations didn't have to think about these kinds of things growing up. So it really is absolutely crucial that the youth have a leading role in this movement. And it's incredible to see that they do and that Shia is absolutely one of the leaders within that youth movement. She's also a leader in the climate justice space. She lives in New York now, but she grew up in the Atome Toltec indigenous community in central Mexico. So she's always been driven to make the climate movement more inclusive and diverse, and also to advocate for the indigenous wisdom and practices that can help drive the change that we need. After she moved to New York in 2015, she became heavily involved in the existing climate movement. And she attended her first United Nations climate conference in February of 2017, where she brought indigenous knowledge into decision-making spaces, and her participation led her to win the Spirit of the UN Award in 2018. Later, she started organizing with Fridays for Future NYC, which she became one of the lead organizers for. And the biggest strike Shia was involved in organizing brought together 300,000 people to the streets of New York. In April of 2020, Shia co-founded the Re-Earth Initiative, which is an international youth-led organization that focuses on highlighting the intersectionality of the climate crisis. Her notable participations list is long and includes COP 25, 26, and 27, the United Nations Climate Summit, the Nobel Prize Summit, Global Citizens, Glamour Women of the Year Awards, TED Countdown Summit, the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, Harvard University, and Verge 21. She gave her first TED Talk in 2020 and is on the TED Youth Advisory Council. She was invited as the only speaker at the Biden Climate Summit in 2021, where she spoke to 40 heads of state. She is the opening essayist of the anthology All We Can Save and has written numerous op-eds, of which I can't read them all out because there are just too many. So check out her website to see some of the incredible pieces that she's written. She's currently a student at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's studying environmental studies with a concentration in policy. I mean, didn't we all do all of these things by the time we were 21 years old? It's just absolutely incredible. 
In our conversation today, we talk about what it was like growing up in Mexico, the types of things that she saw firsthand in regards to the changing climate, how she came to be this impressive global leader. We talk about climate justice activism and the wisdom we can all draw from her and other indigenous communities. And we talk about the future and where Shia says we need to be in 10 years. Throughout our whole conversation, I was continuously amazed by Shia's storytelling skills. It's like every answer has this beautiful beginning, middle, and end, and she really breaks down these complex narratives in accessible and very insightful ways. I honestly never knew a 21-year-old could be so wise, not just smart, but wise. I think you'll understand what I mean really soon. So I think we are going to see some really big things from Shia in the future, which is great because the planet really needs it and really needs more people like her. So I hope this conversation leaves you inspired to take action and join in the movement to save the earth and humanity. But for now, before we get to that, please enjoy my conversation with Shia Bastida. Hi, Shia. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am as well. You've got quite the story in your just a couple decades of life, and I'm really excited to get into it all. And I really want to start with your story and how you came to be this global leader of the climate crisis at the age of 15 or so. So can you tell us a bit about growing up in Mexico and what were some of the influences and circumstances that led you to the current path that you're on? So I was born and raised in central Mexico in a small town called San Pedro Tultepec, which is situated about 40 minutes west from Mexico City. We're in between two of the biggest cities in Mexico, Mexico City and Toluca. And what that means is that even though my town is, for me, kind of this sanctuary for nature, we have a beautiful lagoon with just so much diversity, and we used to have a beautiful, beautiful river. It also became a source for the extractivism of Mexico City, meaning they have been taking our water for 80 years to develop the city. They have been using our waters as place for waste from factories. There's a lot of things that made my town the recipient of a lot of extraction and pollution contamination. I grew up with this very specific philosophy of the world that my parents taught me. My dad is Otomi, which is an indigenous group in Mexico. For many, many years, indigenous peoples, and still today, have been persecuted, discriminated against in Mexico. And my dad was really the one who said in my family, I want to reclaim my culture. I want to reclaim my language. I want to reclaim our ways of life. He was the first one in my uncle's generations to relearn the language. And that's why I have an Otomi name, Xie. And it's just so beautiful because all my cousins do. All of the uncles took that tradition again. We took it back from having like a Spanish last name, for example. And that is the legacy that he wanted to bring to us, to me and my brother, is that legacy of being proud of who you are, of your culture. And in indigenous cosmology, that culture is really about being connected with nature, being one with your immediate environment, being respectful of your environment, having that principle of reciprocity, knowing that everything that we take must be given back. It's this circularity that we operate with. Obviously, that is a very idealized version of what the world is today. And I don't think I really noticed how disconnected we were until I started growing up and seeing how come we have our beautiful lagoon here and the water that's coming in through our river is one of the most contaminated dead zones that we have in the country. Things didn't really add up. And I started noticing that there was a very big distinction between what my parents taught me the world should be and what it actually was. I call that the first layer of the climate crisis, the extractivist industries, the targeted pollution, how small communities with no political power are usually targeted by industries. 
And then the second layer of the climate crisis is the climate disasters. So my town suffered from heavy flooding and it has suffered from drought. Not only my town, obviously, but Mexico as a whole experienced the harshest drought in 70 years around the 2010s. And we felt that. And the country as a whole felt that. Me and my town, we felt that. Our crops weren't growing. The soil was dry. It was eroding. And then when flooding comes with weak soil, it causes a lot of environmental damage, economic damage, social damage. And the worst part was that that water actually had pollution from the river that overspilled. So it's just this mix. And a lot of climate academics call it the perfect storm. So it's the mixture of pollution, of climate disasters, and also a weak structure that isn't able to respond. That happened when I was 13 in 2015. And it really shocked me in a way that I think a lot of people in my generation are coming to terms with. The fact that we are seeing the effects of the climate crisis. It's not something theoretical anymore. It's not something that's happening in the North Pole. It's not that our kids or grandkids are going to see it. It's something that's material. And these events are filling us with experience. I moved to New York City actually the day after the flood, not because of the flood, but because my parents already had a job lined up in New York. We had our visas, we had everything to go. But I did leave my town knowing that I didn't know how it was going to come back from the flood. I didn't know how we were going to come back from that very, very harsh event that happened. Obviously, it's a whole other conversation, but moving to a new city to a different country, a language you don't know. I couldn't speak or read English. That was very shocking as well. But some of the things that shocked me the most about New York City were all of the facts about environmental racism and all of the facts about school segregation and how New York has the most segregated school system. I went to a school in Harlem that was 99% Black and Hispanic. And because of the racial makeup of the school, we didn't have good teachers. I didn't have a science teacher for four months. Kids didn't really care about school. I thought that was the American system. And I didn't really feel like it was fair for kids who lived in one of the richest cities in the world to experience such low qualities of education. I went to high school afterwards and I saw such a big difference because I went to high school more downtown. I realized that transition period really slowed me down in what I thought was important, which was the protection of communities, which was this aspect that the climate crisis and environmentalism isn't this green thing where you go to a park and enjoy nature. It's really about the injustices that the climate crisis represents, the targeting of communities. In the Bronx, 17% of adults have asthma, which is 10% higher than the national average. And it's because people live in marginalized communities that are targeted by pollution. I started putting all of these dots together and realized that the climate crisis does manifest in every single place in the world in different magnitudes and that the injustice aspect of it was the thread that united a lot of the experiences that I saw in Mexico and in New York. That is a very long way to say I kind of woke up and you know when you're young and they tell you wait until you see the real world I thought I saw the real world finally, and I didn't like the real world. I didn't like the injustice. I didn't like, you know, that something so much better was possible, and we weren't fighting for that. We were instead subsidizing fossil fuels. We were subsidizing the industry that has taken so much, subsidizing the destruction of nature, the contamination of our aquifers and our air and our water. And I decided that I couldn't let that happen, not only because of, the principles that I grew up with, but also because of the legacy that I wanted to have. And my parents actually met at the first ever Earth Summit in 1992. So they have been climate activists since they were in their 20s. They met through a climate conference. I feel like I am the extended legacy of what my parents have been working for their entire lives. So really, it's a no-brainer that I am so involved in the climate movement and I wanted to be successful because we have no other option. It's such an incredible story. You're a legacy from your parents and also from the elders in your community, which I want to get to. I want to talk about the wisdom and the knowledge that they have passed along. But you talk about having to wake up. And I just think that's so kind of ironic given the age that you were. You know, your generation has had to wake up a lot earlier 
everybody else is just waking up now in whatever decade they're currently in, and you've had it your whole life. So I want to talk about indigenous wisdom. I want to talk about being a youth in this moment. But first, I just want to take a step back real quick. I think you're so good at explaining and telling stories, and I really want to have you set the scene for us about the current problem. You know, I think it can feel quite complicated to people who aren't in the weeds of this every day, you know, talking about carbon emissions and sea levels and how many years until it's too late. So I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of what the reality of the situation is. And also, you've started talking about this a bit already, but trying to understand how we got here. How did it get so bad? And then we can get into solutions. So the reality of the climate crisis is really bad. I am in university right now. I am studying environmental studies and the focus of the classes that I'm taking are on climate science, are on geology, energy and environmental systems. All of the things that make me understand the climate crisis at a deep level. One of my professors is Michael Mann, who won the Tyler Prize because of his science on the climate crisis. So I would say that when people tell youth, you know, go to school, learn some of the things. We are in school. We are learning all of the climate science. And every single day, I learn how bad our position is. The records for warming, we're breaking the records every single year. We have the highest average temperature on record almost every year. Our oceans, which are actually the best indicator for warming, are breaking records every single year. Our glaciers are melting. We're losing a lot of species. We're in the sixth mass extinction. The amounts of pollution that we are generating, we're burning more carbon. We're not decreasing our carbon emissions as we should. All of these things that are going on in the larger climate earth system are all taking us towards a world of more than three degrees of warming. Right now, we are at about 1.2 degrees of warming, and we're already seeing how hurricanes are becoming more intense, flooding events are becoming more intense, wildfires are becoming more intense, the season is longer, sometimes the season is year-round in parts of California. Just to give a quick visualization of the climate crisis in California, the dryness makes the land a lot easier to burn. So when it burns, you take all of the vegetation away, all of the nutrients away, If it rains a lot, which rain is becoming more prominent because with more heat, we're evaporating more water, so the rain events are stronger. If there's no vegetation to hold the soil in place, we have landslides, and that's what happened in California recently. So you have this mixture where all weather events are becoming more extreme, which is going to cause massive disruptions to all of our ecosystems, all of our infrastructure. We're seeing record cold as well, which is part of the climate crisis. We see records in every single part of the climate system. And when you see all of this and know that this is 1.2 degrees of warming, imagine where we would be at 2 degrees of warming, at 3 degrees of warming. If we don't stop our emissions by 2070, 16% of the world could be uninhabitable because of how hot the land is going to be. That was a study done by the New York Times. That future scares me. That's not a future that I want to live in. If we know all of these things, which actually Exxon predicted with 99% accuracy, we are heading into a world where I wouldn't like to bring my kids to. People ask me all the time, what would you do if we weren't in a climate crisis? We could be ourselves. We could do whatever we wanted to do. We could be more creative in different areas. And right now we are faced with the harshest problem that humanity has ever faced. For me, it's also one of the biggest opportunities that we have to question how we got here. And the simple answer is always burning of fossil fuels. When we look at solutions and we have really fancy geoengineering solutions, it's easier to just stop burning fossil fuels. And the industry has had a hold on the political system for so long. When oil prices are high, Actually, candidates are more likely to lose elections. It's so embedded into the way that we operate. And for example, having a car in the US is such a staple of independence. What does a world look like where you don't have a car, where you find other sources of 
learning about yourself, what do cities without cars look like? I don't know how to drive. I don't have a license because I don't want to have a car. I want to force myself to live in cities that are connected by public transportation. So all of this to say, the climate crisis, it's easy to ignore it, especially when you're listening or hearing about it, learning about it every single day. But it is even harder to ignore when you are not in the climate movement. But this is a reminder to always, always remember that every decision that we make, every fraction of a degree that we're able to stay under, is the difference between stability in the future or not. And I take that very seriously. And it's not just because of where I come from and what I learned and what my philosophies are. It's because that is the state of the world. So, you know, I consider myself a climate optimist, a stubborn optimist, which means I'm not seeing this threat as something that is going to hold me down. I'm seeing this threat as a jumping point to really restructure the way that the planet has worked so that it stops being an extractivist economy that hurts people. That's an incredible way to reframe it, seeing it as urgent, but also an opportunity to restructure and rebuild everything that's not working. Let's talk about how we do that then, how we do restructure. A lot of your work is grounded in climate justice. So I'd love to have you define that for us and talk about what that looks like in practice and give us some examples if you have some. So climate justice for me is very important because if you think of the climate movement for the past 50 years, it has been governed by mostly environmental organizations that focus mostly on ecosystem protection, that focus more on securing things like the Clean Water Act, things that are more about just the environment specifically. Climate justice recognizes that the climate crisis also puts people in danger, specifically marginalized communities, indigenous communities, people of color. So when we think of fixing the climate crisis, we not only have to think about how do we decrease the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, we have to think about how are we touching and bettering the lives of the people that have been historically targeted by pollution, by extractivism. And that not only applies for the national sense, for example, in the United States, pipelines usually run through indigenous land. Where do we find water being contaminated? Where do we find Cancer Alley in Louisiana? All of these things also happen at the global level. So people in the global south are experiencing the climate crisis at much harder magnitudes. When we go to climate conferences, my friends from the global south are talking about the experiences that they had with heat waves, with typhoons, with flooding. And my friends from the global north are usually theoretically talking about these things or talking about the heat wave that hit Europe. But it's nothing compared to the fact that if you live in Delhi, you have to actually stay inside because of how bad air pollution can get. People in Delhi have been wearing masks way before the pandemic because of pollution. And so when we think of the new world, I don't want to put a green stamp on everything. So I don't want to say everybody switch to electric vehicles because it's better for the environment and because it's going to reduce CO2 emissions. I want to say, actually, put that money into public transportation so that we don't have to rely on lithium mining, which is actually going to hurt a lot of people in the global south. And that is the big difference between going through an environmentalism path that mostly focuses on nature versus a green capitalism path that only follows on making things green versus a truly imaginative, restorative, and challenging way of restructuring the system so that it actually makes the future different. When we talk about the cost of everything, companies, the private sector, they care about how expensive things are. There's something called ecosystem services. How much does this river help me in filtering water so that I don't have to build a water treatment system? There's billions and billions of dollars that ecosystems are valued at if you look at it through money. And all of these are always not considered. We're always talking about how do we make the economy strong, but we actually pay the polluters and the industries that are destroying. So we have to change that. I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know how we're going to get to that other side. 
what I do know is that the system that we have lived in is very short and that we are extremely creative, imaginative, smart. And if we put our hands in our heart, I think we can actually get to a better place. And you can't do that without a climate justice framework. So that's the biggest point that not only I want to drive through, but I think my generation is really conscious of that. You cannot talk about the climate movement without talking about gender and race and indigenous background. I think that has been the biggest shift in the environmental movement in the last century, talking about climate justice. Fantastic. We'll be right back after this short break to hear Shia talk about some of the indigenous wisdom that she sees as most essential for addressing the climate crisis. Hello, friends. I want to tell you about another podcast that celebrates women's achievements. It's a narrative podcast called Lost Women of Science, and it's dedicated to uncovering the stories of female scientists who have been lost to history. Lost Women of Science, which is published in partnership with Scientific American, revisits the historical record one scientist at a time. Their mantra, we're not mad, we're curious. Every season of Lost Women of Science takes a deep dive into the life and work of one woman who did something extraordinary in her field of science. We're especially excited about the newest season, which tells the story of Dr. Marie Nicewander and her breakthrough treatment more than 50 years ago for heroin addiction. Join host Katie Hafner and Carol Sutton-Lewis as they delve into her story and the approach that reshaped the landscape of addiction treatment for decades to come. You'll find Lost Women of Science wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about some of that indigenous wisdom. So you've written that human civilization needs to make drastic changes in its values system, that it needs to mature, and that there are guidelines and principles from the elders of indigenous communities that humanity really needs right now. So I'd love to hear about some of the principles and the knowledge that you see as most essential for addressing the climate crisis. I always talk about reciprocity first, because I think it's one of the principles that most illustrates the relationship that has been severed because we have been taking and taking and taking not only from Mother Earth but also from each other without considering the repercussions. Reciprocity is about giving back but I think it's not only about giving back the same amount but we're guests on this planet. When you're a guest somewhere you actually behave better than you do at home. So I think we have to think of ourselves not only as living in this planet, we're so lucky to be here, and we have to treat our planet with more respect than we would because of all of the things that Mother Earth does for us. So I think that's the first principle, reciprocity. The second one is intergenerational cooperation. We are right now operating in a way where there's actually fights among generations Gen Z, millennials, boomers, we have all of these generational divides that actually hurt us a lot. Because Gen Z, for example, I would say we're the most mobilized, but we have the least access to infrastructure and resources and institutions. So we will not change anything if we don't build bridges with generations that have the economic power, the political power, the institutional power. And this is modeled in very small scales in indigenous communities. We have youth and elder circles where elders teach us about lessons of life, principles, stories, wisdom. And I think the reason why elders are so wise is because they talk to youth. It's because we are the closest to the beginning of life. And we are kind of naive when we are so close to the beginning of life. When we give that purity through conversations with elders, I think they're able to grab the wisdom from that and add everything that they know so that it becomes knowledge. We are missing that so much in our current way of living. The second part of intergenerational cooperation is also the awareness that we are all connected to seven generations around us. There's a very famous indigenous principle that says every decision that you make has to be informed by the wisdom of the past seven generations, but also to ensure the stability of the future seven generations. But most people don't realize that you are actually in the middle of that seven generation circle as well, because you can know your grandmother, your mother, yourself, 
your child and your grandchild. Just in your lifetime, you will know seven generations. It's not that far away as we think it is. And so that for me is one of the strongest principles that we have because we are thinking in a very short frame right now. Our elections are very short-lived, so politicians are only thinking about the next year, the next two years, the next four years. We don't have policies that are generationally sensitive. But I think that encompasses the most important principles that I think Indigenous people hold. And I think the last would be You know, the first thing that you will hear from an Indigenous person is, this is who I am and this is where I'm from. And I think that knowing those two things is the most important thing that a person can hold. If you know who you are and you know where you're from, you know what you must protect. It is a mistake to think that the world is on our shoulders. It is a mistake to think that we are fighting for every corner of the world. When if every person took care of their corner of the world, we would come out of this crisis a lot faster. Because it is about community care. It is about cooperation and not competition. It's about collective, not individualism. So I would say that's probably one of the strongest principles as well. Community care, which is something that is not celebrated, especially in Western cultures, where from the moment that you go to elementary school, you're already competing with other kids for spots. I don't think a kid should be competing for a good education. A kid shouldn't be competing for good access to services, good access to sports, good access to art. It should all be part of how society works so that we support each other. Absolutely. It should be, but it feels like we're so far away from a culture that embodies, that imbues everything that you've just described. So I'm wondering how you see the process of getting there. You know, we have the policies that need to change, innovation, industries to get rid of. But what about the culture that we need to adapt? How do you see that transition happening? I think the only way in which we can change culture is through changing narrative. And the only way to change narrative is through storytelling. We are not talking to each other enough. People don't think that other people care about the climate crisis. We don't know the stories of the millions of people affected by climate disasters every year. We only know the statistics and statistics don't touch people. Stories do. That is why I always make it a point to ask somebody what their climate story is, even if they have never thought of it that way. Because when you start making the connections yourself about the fact that you do have a climate story, inevitably you want to become part of the solution because you know you have been affected. And for example, my professor in one of my classes, she runs a climate story project where she asks all of us to write our climate story. And she also takes this program to different high schools across Philadelphia. And she has said that giving people the ability and the instruction to think, to do the mental work, to think of the climate story, actually fills us with so much agency. Because when you realize you've been affected by something, your mind starts making all of the connections of how do we get out of this. That is the only way we're going to get to that cultural shift. When we all see ourselves as truly having been affected by the climate crisis. Because all of a sudden, Exxon is not just this company that you go to fill up your tank. Exxon is the company that has been lying to you for 50 years and fueling climate misinformation. They're not neutral. They actually have a lot of power and we have power too. So I think that is the only way in which that cultural shift is going to happen. And it is a mistake to think that we're the first people to go undergo a cultural shift, that the climate movement is the first one doing many of these things. One of the things that has helped me the most in organizing protests, in organizing direct actions, is knowing that I can pick up a history book and see all of the movements that have done the same, from the civil rights movement to women's rights. All of the movements that we have, like just in the U.S., you don't even have to go to other parts of the world, have already used tactics in media, tactics in the arts, tactics in lobbying politically and suing governments and suing companies to get to the other side. And when there's a cultural shift happening, you see it reflected everywhere. You see it reflected in fashion. You see it reflected in curriculum. You see it reflected in music. And that is starting to happen in the climate movement. Right now, my computer is on a bunch of books. They're all climate books. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) But all my classes are climate. And that's obviously because I chose them. But the fact that I can fill up my entire schedule 
with just classes on environmental ethics, on geology, on global climate change, on the physics of global warming, the shift is starting to happen. I think we are at that point where it's the hardest to cross and then it all kind of cascades over. So that's for me, fills me with a lot of energy. What I will say, climate deniers are a big part of the conversation. They're a tiny percentage. I think less than 10% of the people in the United States think the climate crisis isn't real, but they're one of the most vocal people. So it is not our job to convince everybody that the climate crisis is real. It is actually more effective to deepen the understanding of the people who know it's real so that they know all of the things that it interacts with, so that they know that it is a multi-sectoral issue that touches everything from architecture to physics to food that we eat and the clothes that we wear. And when you put it in that way and the people who care start learning about the intersections of the climate crisis and thus climate solutions, I think that's when we become truly powerful. That's how I see it. That's beautiful. And I think also probably music to people's ears that we don't need to go in arguing with climate deniers. <laughs> we can focus on ourselves, educating ourselves, learning and telling our climate story. I really like thinking about it that way as well. And something else that may help ease people's anxieties a bit without removing the responsibility, because this is still very important. I'm wondering if you can talk about the collective versus the individual. There's also that shift that needs to happen going away from blaming the individual consumer and looking more at collective action. So can you talk about that? It is a marketing strategy to make you believe that you are the responsible of the climate crisis. Companies want you to think that because you didn't recycle, it's your fault. They want you to think that because you didn't bring your own back to the grocery store, you're part of the problem. These things are important on, I guess, an individual consciousness level. But when it comes to the macro systems, we are not responsible of the oil spill that cost BP almost $70 billion to clean up. I'm in Philly right now. There's a refinery that blew up. We're not responsible for the chemicals and the lack of regulations that allow that to happen. And so I think that once we get out of that mindset, we only need to focus on individual actions to be part of the solution. When we realize that we have more power when we tackle systems and when we tackle legislation that is going to change a lot more than recycling your own water bottle is going to do, that is really when we start building something important. And I think structural change makes individual actions a lot easier. For example, in New York City, I lobbied for the city to ban plastic bags in every deli and store in New York or like to charge so if people wanted a plastic bag. That is a lot easier than me going around and telling everybody, don't forget to bring your own bag to the grocery store. It took me way less effort to go and lobby at City Hall for that to happen. And that's, I think, the mindset that we need to have. What institutions am I part of that I can change so that individual action becomes a no-brainer? And there's a lot of guilt that comes into buying a new coffee with a plastic cup, all of those things. They are such a distraction from the bigger issue. Even flying, for example, flying is 3% of global emissions. The fashion industry is 10%. Just burning fossil fuels, obviously, electricity generation makes such a big percentage. If we put more effort into an energy transition than we put into blaming people for taking a flight, we're actually going to get a lot further in our targets and goals. And that was kind of a relief for me as well, to realize that most of the power can be concentrated and we are better at the movement when we don't point fingers at each other. But we're actually questioning BP, why they created the concept of a carbon footprint, when in reality, we should be asking them, how much oil have you spilled? And when you shift that, oh, it's just amazing because again the fossil fuel industry is getting subsidies to destroy the planet and when you see it that way we are now getting subsidies to better the planet but it has taken decades for that to happen collective action structural change is much more powerful than individualism and blaming yourself 
That's such a wonderful way to reframe it and for you to really zoom out for us so we can all understand how we fit and what we can better spend our energy on is so important. And it's a really important narrative that you're leading on. So it's great. Something else I wanted to make sure to talk about is women and gender. And we've talked a bit about how marginalized groups are most impacted. And it's pretty well known by now that the climate crisis is not gender neutral. But I'd love to hear your take on it, how you think of gender in the context of the climate crisis. So when we talk about gender in the climate crisis, people usually say the most affected in climate disasters are women. Or when you have a drought, women have to, for example, in countries where people have to walk to get water, women have to walk longer distances. It puts them at greater risk of assault. All of these social issues that have to do with the climate crisis and women are usually highlighted. But I always like to point at something much more deeper in the philosophy of the world that has to do with masculinity and the patriarchy. The way in which our international relations system is structured is around realism. Realism, when you go to an international relations class, that's the first thing they teach you, is the concept that what countries and states should aim for is money and power, and that it is okay to go to war to get that power. In Morgenthau's Six Principles of Political Realism, he states, emotions cannot be allowed into decision-making. He states, we shouldn't care about hurting other people when it comes to securing our national interest. And there is a response, a feminist response to Morgenthau's Six Principles of Political Realism that say, actually, we do need to think about what we are doing to people Emotions are an important part of our humanity. We're not listening to our emotions. It will turn into violence. And when we have a system that is aware of the repercussions that it has on people, we become a lot better at making decisions. And that's why for me, ecofeminism, in the way in which we see the world, is one of the most important things that we have to implement into our policy internationally. We have heard time and time again that women shouldn't be all of these horrible things that people say about women that we're not good at making decisions because we're emotional da, da, da. but that femininity and that caring is part of our humanity so i think that when we make decisions through that lens of caring that is the only way in which the world is going to change for the realists we live in a system in a global system of anarchy because there is no leader of world countries and in a system of anarchy, everybody goes to war with each other. That is the world that we built on paper. That is the world that we're operating under. And nothing is going to change unless we change our perception of what our relationship with each other is. Once we all know that we come from somewhere local, but we're also global citizens. That duality of belonging, not only to your birthplace, but also to the planet. It is the only way in which we are going to be able to not go to war over resources or war over who has access to what. So when we think about gender, obviously the social impacts of the climate crisis are super important. But we also have to think about the way that the world has been structured, which is through a patriarchal lens that makes certain decisions easier than others. And those decisions usually sideline the environment, women, children, our future, and a security that goes beyond military power. And it's actually about sustainability and sustenance. Speaking of children and the future, I want to talk about your generation as well. This is such a unique fight because the younger you are, the more you'll be impacted, right? And it's been absolutely extraordinary to see young people rising up and telling all the adults in charge everything that they're getting wrong and becoming leaders themselves, giving talks, mobilizing hundreds of thousands of people, which you have done at the age of like 17 years old or 16, 15. It's so inspiring to see. But as you alluded to in the beginning, it's got to be so hard to be a kid with literally the weight of the world on your shoulders. So I'd love to know, for those of us not in your generation, what it's like to grow up in this world with this knowledge of the climate crisis and seeing it 
get more urgent every year? I think it's really, really hard to understand how a kid must be feeling. And I know that I see the climate crisis as something that is going to have significant impacts on my life and has already had significant impacts on my life. And even I am more lucky than somebody who was born today because I have 20 years of advantage in how much less climate impact I'm going to feel. I think if adults were able to understand this, we would be in a different world. But we have an issue that most of our leaders are more than 60 years old and they will not be here when the worst impacts of the climate crisis hit. By 2050, I'm going to be 48 years old. My mom is 48, and I cannot imagine being my mom's age with two kids and living in a world where we have to worry about the next drought and worry about food insecurity and worry about where water is going to come from and what the tensions are going to be. I think most of our power in the youth movement does come from that generational injustice. It comes from not knowing all of the facts and not knowing all of the climate solutions. It comes about looking the 70-year-old president in the eyes and saying, what are you going to do to ensure that I make it to your age? What are you going to do to ensure that my kids make it to your age? And I think that, you know, the emotional feelings that we as a generation have around the climate crisis are really overlooked. We talk a lot about climate anxiety. We talk a lot about climate grief. And what I get from that conversation is that we cannot grieve something that we don't love. And if you have grief around the climate crisis, it's because of how deeply you love a stable world, which is a no-brainer. We love Mother Earth. We love everything that Mother Earth has had to offer us. And we, most of all, fight for the ability to experience joy for the ability to show my kids the place where I grew up in a way that is not massively unchanged. I don't think adults are understanding this yet. I don't think they care about other than the economic. I don't think they see the worth in thinking about their great-grandchildren's future. But when they do, there are cases where grandkids or kids have told their oil CEO parents that they're ruining their future. And that is when things actually change the most. When we go back to the very basics, why am I wanting so much money for my legacy? But what does money matter in a legacy in a planet that doesn't exist? Wow. That is a point right there. So adults wake up. (laughs) That is a point right there for everyone listening. Adults wake up. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the adults listening? I think we don't like when adults tell us you're so inspiring rather than actually being inspired to do something because it is very different the feeling that I get when somebody tells me you're so right and inspiring and you make me hopeful of the future because they know I won't stop fighting but that feels like any burden that they felt they put it on me rather than saying you're so inspiring I'm going to start doing this. Every time you feel inspired, don't only think about the fact that you are lifted of burden. Think of the responsibility that you now have because you know how much it moves somebody else. Be inspired. Not see you as inspiring. Be inspired. Mm -hmm. Another great point. Okay, so on the topic of what all of us listening can do. You know, we've talked about collective action. We've talked about telling our climate story, talked about now listening to someone like yourself and don't just walk away feeling that you're inspiring, but actually be inspired to do something. What are some things that we can do? Say we understand the point you made about the collective action, but we don't even know where to start. That is the hardest question that we always get. Where do I start? Because I wish there was a simple answer. I wish I could tell you, go to a website where you could just have all the answers that you need. But the truth is that there is a beauty in the fact that nobody's going to start in the same place. For example, I know a documentary producer that had been working on documentaries on all topics, from food to clothing to biopics, like all of the different types of media that you could think of. And she watched the documentary Chasing Coral, and she thought to herself, Why 
are we bleaching all the coral in the world and acidifying the ocean? And why am I not doing something about the climate crisis in my own job? So she made it the point of her career to only do climate documentaries. If I met her in the street, I couldn't tell her, this is where you start. And it's the same for somebody else that I met that she was once on a boat and somebody told her, throw out the trash. And she said, where do I throw it out? And the person responded, in the ocean. That's when she realized that you never really throw things away. You just move them out of your visual field into the ocean or into a landfill. When we start making these connections and when you have that point that changes the way that you see the world and then you say, how come I'm not part of the solution? That is where you start. If you're listening to this, you probably already care about the climate crisis. I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, so where do I have influence and then how can I use that space to change things. I think we often underestimate the power that we have, the power that conviction and determination has, and the power that a voice has on a system that is yearning for people to have a passion. And the biggest passion that we can have, in my opinion, is just being part of a legacy of building a better world. Amazing. There's that legacy again. Let's focus on that legacy. I want to ask what you hope will be most different in 10 years' time, but Maybe I'm also kind of curious to see what kind of world you can describe to us that would be more on track in 10 years' time. So to meet our climate goals, we need to have our carbon emissions by 2030. That's kind of in 10 years. So I want to see a world where we have half our carbon emissions, where we are on our way to a transition to a purely renewable grid where we are prioritizing city planning and infrastructure that is resilient, making sure that buildings are well insulated so that we don't spend that much on heating and cooling, that instead of having heaters and AC, we have heat pumps. I think there's very concrete things that we can think about for people to really shift their understanding of climate through climate education. I think, and this is something that was implemented in Argentina, Every single worker that works for the federal government is required to undergo a climate crisis course. So what would it look like for every single person that works for the federal government to undergo a climate solutions training? There are so many things that are possible. What does it look like for our food systems to change, to be regenerative, to not rely on monocrops? What does it look like for fashion to not be trendy, and be in micro cycles, but to be long lasting, to not use polyester in the making of clothes, to shift our diet to be less meat based. All of these things, they're all solutions that are possible. I recommend this documentary called 2040 that shows what the world can look like in 2040 if we implemented all of the existing climate solutions. Meaning that we don't have to wait for the big breakthrough solution to come through because we already have everything that we need. So in 10 years, I want to see us be brave enough and courageous enough to implement these solutions. I want governments to meet all of their climate targets. I want schools to teach about climate in a comprehensive way. And I want the fashion world to be a lot more mindful and not just rely on these micro trends that actually make clothes throw away. And I never thought we would be at that point where I'm not looking forward to giving my great granddaughter this sweater. Mm hmm. Yeah. All right. Then before I ask a final question about a takeaway for people, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today that we haven't covered? I would say if you're particularly interested in the youth climate movement and how the youth climate movement has been able to really bring the climate crisis to the front pages, especially through the climate strikes that exploded in 2019, know that all of the high schoolers who organize those things are all in college now or most of us are of age where four years have passed so we might not get a mobilization as big as we got in the streets but that doesn't mean that we're not already choosing our jobs and choosing the things that we're going to study and our lifestyles in a way that is very strongly informed by the sense of community that we felt when organizing because I think that that was a very strong moment for people. For me, it was seeing that 
I was going to sleep before a strike day and people in Australia were already on the streets and knowing that it was going to be my turn. We have never, ever seen mobilization so big in any issue area that is truly worldwide and coordinated ever. And it's definitely because of the internet and social media and the fact that we're able to connect with each other. And now all of those kids who are out there are in institutions trying to change them. And it's not easy if we don't get support. So think of always, and I say this so many times, but always holding the hand of somebody who's wiser, older, and the hand of somebody who's younger and needs mentorship in a way. Because I know that even though I'm still a youth in the climate space, there's a 16-year-old coming up right now that I need to be aware of as well. So just be mindful of the fact that we can help in a much closer way than we think. It doesn't have to be theoretical. It can be very doable to make sure that if you have woken up to the fact that we need to be part of climate solutions, you bring other people with you. It's like when people say, bring two friends to the polls, bring two friends to climate solutions with you. Amazing. Great. And if people take one thing away from this conversation with you today, what would you want it to be? Even though activism is always seen as confrontational, I actually see it as a practice in creativity and imagination because we are challenging broken systems and imagining what a new, better world looks like. We are artists of the future. And I think if we see ourselves as that, everything becomes much more exciting. So think of yourself as having this very strong agency and that you know that whatever energy you're putting into the movement right now will be the future that your kids are going to live in. I usually have to remind myself of this. If you take one thing away from today is the power of agency that we have. Don't fall into the monotonous. Always question things and try to imagine them in a better way. Incredible. What an incredible note to end on. Shia Bastida, thank you so much for your work and your wisdom. I am inspired by you and I am very excited to see what you do in the years to come. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think that we need more of women's stories in the world, be sure to share with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help us beat those pesky algorithms. Follow us on socials for more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes. And for access to bonus content and ad-free listening, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. This is the best way to help me continue to put out more and better episodes. Or you can buy me a metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs. And in exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep, knowing that you are helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Anna Steckline. It was edited by Maddie Searle, with communication support by Joe Cummings. A special thanks to Amanda Brown, Kate York, and Dan Kendall for their ongoing production support and invaluable advising. Tune into the next episode of The Story of Woman, where I speak with Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, a best-selling author, strategist, founder, and teacher who has been named by Time Magazine as one of 15 women who will save the world. We see underrepresentation of women in virtually every climate decision-making space, from government to business to media. And we have a growing body of evidence that when women are present and leading, not even at fully equal numbers, the outcomes for the planet are better. And that means the outcomes for global humanity are better. And a special thanks to our Patreon collaborators, Veronica Linares from Values Leadership Consulting, transforming mindsets to put humanity and the planet at the heart of leadership. Christine Beasy from Untangle Money, creators of financial plans designed specifically for women. Dr. Julie Allig of JLA Analytics, your data's talking, are you listening? Joanna Cummings, editor of the Grub Street Journal, 
the magazine for people who make magazines. Jill Quigley from The Giving Grove, Little Orchards, Big Impact, a nationwide network of little orchards. Andrew Planet, advocate for naming our species human rather than man, and for joint matrilineal surnames. To share your name, business, or message at the end of every episode, sign up to be a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash the story of woman. Get your message out there, listen to bonus content, and rest well, knowing that you're doing your part in helping to elevate the story of woman.